Welcome back to the Joe Cozo Show. Today's show is sponsored by MyPillow.com. Right now, they're having a 66% off. I feel like they're having 66% off all the time. But the catch is, of course, you have to use the promo code TJCS. Again, MyPillow.com. I use all of their merchandise personally myself. Love everything. Love the Giza sheets. Love the pillows. The bathroom towels are my favorite. Again, MyPillow.com. Promo code TJCS. J-C-S. Now, to today's guest. His name is Dr. Jerome Heiler. I absolutely fell in love with this individual. He is hilarious. He is serious. He authored two books. He is an expert on what's going on in the American economy today. He's also a historian. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Dr. Jerome Heiler. All right, welcome back to the Joe Cozo Show. We have lots to talk about. I got something going. I got something cooking here. This is the big leagues. It's New York. I said I was in the worst neighborhood, man. I said I had a near-death experience. Crazy? Robert, if you've been through what I've been through in the past month, you'd be, you'd be crazy too. All right, Dr. Jerome Heiler. Welcome to the Joe Cozo Show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into anything, I want to just humanize you. I want to get to know you really quick here. And the people that don't know who you are, maybe they'll get a little flavor for it. What is your favorite food? Chinese food. Chinese food. Yeah. So you could have Chinese. And when you order Chinese food, what is the typical order that you would have that would really satisfy you? Beef and broccoli, because it's important to eat broccoli. And I don't eat it any other way <laughs> other than with garlic sauce or, or such. Uh, love egg rolls. Uh, love egg, spare ribs. Egg rolls. Uh, is boneless spare ribs or on the bone? Bone. Well, it depends. I have two dogs, so when I want them to enjoy the meal too, I get regular spare ribs. When I'm a little more selfish, I get boneless spare ribs because you get so much more. And the place near me makes them great. That makes them perfect. Yeah. So what kind of dogs do you have? I have a um, uh, black German Shepherd mixed with Belgian Sheepdog and a purebred, all-black Australian Shepherd. Oh, I have a all-black German Shepherd. Mm -hmm. and Full-size? Full-size, yeah. He's 115 pounds. And a, his uncle, which is a, a black and tan German Shepherd as well. So two uh -huh. German Shepherds I have. They are, I mean, you're talking about feeding them. They are... They yep. eat a lot. Yeah. They yeah. eat a lot. And prices are going up on dog food as yeah. of everything else. As of everything else, yeah. The, I was getting a 40-pound bag of dog food for my two dogs that used to be $45 up to $78 I don't, I, for the same 40-pound bag. It's unbelievable. So let's that's a perfect segue because this is why you're here. You have an, you know, an expertise on what's happening here in America in today's society. But before we do, just... Give us a little background about yourself, you know, a, a brief description of where you're from and, you know, who you are. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, lived there my entire life. For 30 years, I was a club date DJ, uh, working weddings, corporate events, and I was the Latin, African-American, and West Indian specialist in my offices. That was the music that I love, and so I was often at parties 
in the Bronx and stuff where me and a couple of the waitresses were the only white people in town. Oh, wait, hold on a second. I gotta, I have to, I have, we, we have to stop right there. <laughs> DJing, yep. African-American music. Okay, yep. so give me some examples of what songs, like what were your go, you knew that you were going to some wedding or birthday party, whatever you were DJing at in the Bronx. Give me a couple of records that were your go-to hits. Do you know It Takes Two? It Takes Rob Two to Hayes? Make... Yeah, It Takes Two to Make a Thing Go Right. Hey. I watched him in concert. Uh-huh. Mixed into It Takes Two by Fat Man Scoop. Into, mixed right... Just bring in, that microphone a little closer to you. Um, mixed right into Fat Man Scoop's uh, cover on It Takes Two. Right into Let Me Clear My Throat. Yes! DJ Cool. <laughs> That still happens at weddings. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been doing it for 20, 10 years at least. Uh, that into more money, more problems. More money, more problems. And, Biggie Smalls. Uh, yeah, and, I gotta tell you, I am, I am never. Thank God we got into that because it would have never come out. Nope. Not a, you know... You wouldn't have known. Not, <laughs> especially that, you know, what were the topics that we're about to talk about. Now exactly, we're into yeah. this. So... One, you know, another question I, I had. I was doing more than a hundred parties a year for thirty years, with the only exception being nine eleven, when all the parties stopped for a couple of months after that. Every other year, I did a hundred plus parties a year, uh, going to my places, rolling my equipment in, setting up, doing the party. Uh, also, West Indian music, reggae, calypso, love calypso. Also. Haitian music. I do not too many white people know about Haitian I music. I never even heard of Haitian music. Z Zouk and Kampa are the two genres of Haitian music. Really, really romantic music. A little with the beat, with the beat. It's not a slow dance by any stretch, but just beautiful. I did uh, Latin, salsa, merengue, bachata, gumbia, vallenato, boleros. Uh, what, did you have technique 1200s? Yeah, uh, just what I started with. Yeah, started yeah, yeah, yeah. With those are expensive back then. I still too. have, to, I still have two of them. Then I went to CDs in the mid '90s. Um, I never uh, picked up what they're doing now. Now, no one, no DJ brings CDs anymore. They do it on the MacBook Book Pro. They everything's on a hard drive that they make. Everything's digital. Yeah, at the moment that. Uh, the company I was working for, Westchester Company, uh, asked me to transit. I would have had to spend months putting all my CDs on the hard drive and everything. And I was getting of age where I was not only old enough to be um, the bride's father, I was old enough to be the bride's grandfather. So you. So I said it was time <laughs> to stop. And I was a professor at Seton Hall University at the same time doing both. Um, so I stopped DJing in 2015. It's been seven years since you I hung did my up. Last you hung party. up the you hung up the the mixer. Yep, um, rain mixer, the standard yep. thing. Yeah, yeah. But then I started using the Newmark mixers, the little things, little boxes, and that served me very, very well, and it was a lot lighter. Well, it real, you know, bef before we leave this whole DJing topic. You know, because I used to DJ and I had, I couldn't scratch. I, didn't, I couldn't figure it out, right? It was, it's a technique, right? Sort of technique 1200s. But it was a technique that you had to do to scratch and mix and do everything like that. But did you find it difficult? Or should I say, which did you like better? Did you like, you know, mixing with the records? 
Or did you find it easier with the CDs? Much easier with the CDs, um, much b a better control. I never scratched once in 30 years. I never really done any scratching. That's not what I did. What I did was I knew the right music to play for whatever group it's, I was playing to. You, it's a gut. Yeah. Right? It was in your gut. You knew, okay, listen, looks like people, I need to get back on the dance floor. You had go-to yeah. songs with that too, right? Exactly. Like, you know, when you knew that you had to get people out there and doing things. You knew exactly what to play, and it worked every single time. You didn't have to invent the wheel. It's almost like time. a comedian. You yeah, knew, yeah, exactly. got a new crowd. I know this joke at this certain time is going to really exactly. punch it home. Exactly. As a matter of fact, uh, before I was a DJ, I was a musician. I played drums for a good number of years, and I worked at all the Catskill Mountain resorts. So I saw the comics come back week after week after week doing the same routines they did all the time getting the same laughs at the same point and i realized you don't have to invent the wheel again if this works it's gonna work it's gonna work it's so true so talk to me a little bit about seton hall so were you uh, a professor as you were djing or did you stop djing and then became a professor i was doing both at the same time simultaneously um i like to say that um the outside of me and the inside of me doesn't belong together. Uh, but we're filing for a legal separation, so I think it'll work out. <laughs> I love it. I would tell, uh, when I did my Latin parties, gentlemen would come up to me and he goes, Man, where do you know this music? You know it better than my wife knows this music. <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, Senor, yo puedo decir mucho in su idioma. Pero cuando todo el mundo me dice algo, yo entiendo casi nada. What does that mean? Translate that. Okay. It means there's a lot I know how to say, but if anybody talks to me in Spanish, I don't understand a word. Okay. So you had <laughs> the punchlines that you yeah. knew you had to get across. Exactly. And, and people came up to me, and because I knew the music, I was playing all the merengues and, all, and mixing them perfectly. Uh, and so they would come up and talk to me Spanish. Naturally, I knew Spanish, but so, I didn't. So you were doing that type of music because obviously it was profitable and, you, and it was great and you were doing that. But when you're in your car by yourself, what do you listen to? Um... Light music, class, classic rock, uh, but not hard rock. I never liked hard rock or heavy Darryl metal. Daryl Hall and John Oates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Journey, Billy Joel. Um, I used to say that Journey is my favorite hard rock band. Because when I'm not listening to Journey, I'm listening to the Carpenters of Barry Manilow. <laughs> oh, Carpenters are great. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Karen what about Carol King? Uh, I liked her very much, but my favorite is Whitney Houston. Really? Absolutely. Oh, Whitney Houston. What did yeah. you think? When, okay, so what <laughs> What did you think when, when you heard that she passed? Did you think that, that something like that was going to happen because of her hanging out with Bobby Brown, or were you not really in tune to that whole thing? Uh, I was partly um, aware of the relationship, but what came out after her funeral is that she was the one who introduced Bobby Brown to Coke. It wasn't the other that. way. It wasn't the other way around. Um, she was the bad girl who influenced him more than what everyone believed that he was the bad boy influencing her. But it was a, a dawn shame. 
my great my favorite song of all time is the greatest love of all by Whitney Houston yeah the greatest love. my of all. second favorite is your song by Elton John my third favorite song of all time is Georgia on my mind by Ray Charles it's a great song too on from there, yeah. oh yeah I used to listen you know I'm a big music the reason why I, as soon as you started saying the DJ you know, I, I used to collect 45s when I was young. Me too. So I had all the 45s and I would DJ in my room and I would make believe that I'm sitting there, I got all these people, I would play different things. But, you know, I didn't really know about a crowd then. I would just play my favorites. I would play Eddie Rabbit, Love, you know, Rainy Night. I did something else. My father owned uh, luncheonettes and every summer he would close up and we would go to the Catskill Mountains and I would be in this place in the afternoon and as soon as people came in, I had all my music on a Webcore CD, the reel-to-reel CDs, and I would say, which reel should I put on for these people? So I was DJing at 13, 14, 15 years old. You already knew that that, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's more about the pleasing part, right? Exactly. That's exactly. what it really comes down to. You put that song on and you know that these people are going to have a good time and they're gonna, it's going to change their mood. Yep. yep. And it's a pleasing thing. One more question before we get into... Politics. You know, yeah, the politics part of this whole thing. Um, you go to the diner, right, for breakfast because you said you're going to the breakfast. You go, to, your father owned dinettes and yeah, stuff. Right. What's your go-to breakfast? Uh, you know, uh, order. What, what do you always say? You go to the diner. If you and I were going to have breakfast and you want to get your favorite breakfast, what is that? Two eggs, um, scrambled uh, hash browns and bacon. Vides two eggs up. <laughs> with the hash browns and the bacon, but I have to have the toast because I like to dip. Me too. Dip the I, yolk in with the, the toast. Tea. In yeah. the tea. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's get into uh, into the politics part of it, okay? Because it's two, totally. We got two different ends of the spectrum, the DJ and then into the professor. What were you a professor in at Seton Hall? What were political you? science. My PhD is in political science, but... Um, I was actually a moral and political philosopher. I taught courses in moral philosophy, political philosophy, and intellectual history. I always believed that in order to really understand philosophical ideas, you have to put them in the historical context. You have to know what the philosopher was dealing with, the problems of his age that he was addressing. So I studied philosophy, along with history, became a, an intellectual historian. That's a historian who studies the impact of ideas on society and the impact of earlier ideas on later ideas. So those were the, my courses. So who would you say, in the course of the United States of America, it's from, from its infancy, who would you say has the most influence on America that, you know, his, you know back then, is still affecting us today. Who would you say that one person or people are? Alexander Hamilton. Alex, the, the Federalist Papers. Uh, well, he began messing up in the Federalist Papers and he continued messing up as uh, Secretary of State. When you say of Treasury, excuse me. When you say messing up, so, yeah. so give me the pre-mess up, what he was doing that you think that he had the best, in, most influence in a positive way, and then take us into the messing up part, as you would say. Um, I don't know that he had a positive influence. Thomas Jefferson had the most positive and the greatest influence on the early development of the country, but Alexander Hamilton canceled out what Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were trying to do. 
I believe that government needs to be a protector, protecting everyone in the enjoyment of what is theirs, their lives, their liberties, and their properties, and the pursuit of happiness. Alexander Hamilton was basically a utilitarian, what became pragmatism. So, in other words, he was interested not in protecting the inalienable rights of every American, or every white American who was a male at the time. Um, He wanted to do what would conduce to the greatness and the power of America. It wasn't entirely evil, I'm not saying that of Alexander Hamilton, but for example, he supported protective tariffs, he supported internal improvements, and these were the vehicles of corruption that took place from his time as Secretary of Treasury all the way through today. Can you give us an example of what kind of corruption you're talking about back then? Yes. And then translate it to what we're seeing today? Okay. Government's exclusive role, its sole role, is to protect us in the enjoyment of our rights. Jefferson wrote in the Declaration, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. But there's only so much to which the governed can consent. None of the governed have a right to take away or give away what belongs to another person, right? So government cannot redistribute wealth. The people cannot give to government a power that they themselves don't possess. They don't possess the power to take away or give away what belongs to others. You're talking about property rights and stuff of that nature. Yes, but I'm also talking about equality. Equality. Alexander Hamilton did not think so much of equality. He thought more about the power, the greatness, the self-defense of the country against uh, Great Britain. Um, So that he supported protective tariffs. What's a protective tariff? It's a tax placed on foreign goods coming into the country. In 1789, when the first Congress met, it was besieged with all kinds of memorials. They were called uh, pleadings for protective tariffs. The manufacturers needed protective tariffs, they said. What is a protective tariff? It protects domestic manufacturers from external competition. What good does that do a farmer, a planter, a shipbuilder, a seaport merchant, or thousands of Americans who are employed on dock, in the dockside trades, or the carters who brought goods from the wharfs where the ships landed to the interior of the country. So in other words, at that moment, because of this second bill that our first president signed into law, the Tariff Act of 1789, no longer were all men equal. They were created equal, but now Congress assumed the power to pick winners and losers. In regards to what, though? So when you say, are you talking about, let's say, for instance, in today's society, like maybe picking Boeing to do a defense contract? Is that what you're saying? So that makes them have the ability now to give certain powers or certain lucrative contracts? Advantages, privileges, benefits, immunities, 
to certain companies because their lobbyists are busy on Capitol Hill lobbying for these advantages. Many of them, almost all of them, are always done at public expense. The taxpayer has to pick up the bill. Again, Congress is picking winners and losers. Here's the problem. Once the first policies were implemented that made a distinction between those who the government favored, the privileges that they got from the government, and those who had to pay the price, in many ways direct and indirect, once a nation decides that some of its citizens have a right not to go out and get, but to lobby Congress and be given, it finds itself facing two daunting questions. Who else should be given, and how much should everyone get? There's only one answer, politics. And so over the years, over the course of, of the 247 years, uh, lobbyists multiplied and multiplied, and now they have their hands in everything Congress does. And if you sit in the gallery of Congress, uh, in the House of Representatives, for example, you'll see congressmen talking about $100,000 to this group, $3 million to that group, $30 million to this group. This is what is inside every bill, all at taxpayers' expense. So what do we have today? We have uh, uh, national debt exceeding $30 trillion. We have taxes through the roof. As I like to say, any family that's paying upwards of 50% in combined federal, state, local income taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, utility taxes, capital gains taxes, is already half slave and half free. So, you know, let's talk about this for a second here, the, the, the deficit. How did the United States, now we're, we, we have the, the, the bank, right, so to speak, the dollar. And the dollar at one, you know, how did the dollar actually come into play of being the world's monetary, you know, uh, asset? I guess it came uh, to be the uh, dominant asset because America was the dominant country. We were the freest country, the greatest country, the most prosperous country. And so other nations followed suit, followed us. Uh, in making the dollar the world's currency. But how did the government, and so what I'm, I guess I'm trying to ask is, how did the United States set it up that other countries would then recognize us? Is it because of our superpower that we had, that the, you know, that we were able to dominate other countries in, in a military fashion? Like how did we all of a sudden, because you're talking about a deficit, right? And the deficit is because of how much money that we're printing, correct? No. Deficit is how much money we're spending, oh, spending that we're not collecting in tax revenue. So the difference is the, is the deficit and the Federal Reserve then has been printing money, creating new dollars in large part to finance the annual deficits, to finance uh, the nation, national debt. In other words, um, the federal government since the pandemic has spent $5 trillion extra. $3.4 trillion is what the Federal Reserve created out of thin air, just notes on a ledger sheet, um, uh, in order to pay for the deficit. In other words, the Federal Reserve cannot go directly to the Treasury Department and, and, and uh, give, its give out its money. 
Can't do that. So what happens is the big banks, they buy the treasury certificates, but they're not taking any risk whatsoever because they turn it over and sell their treasury certificates that they just bought from the treasury to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve puts notations on the ledger and poof, money is created. That's how it's all done. That's how it's and done. Now we're, and, we're, and we're printing. And the more that we print, then the value of obviously the dollar goes down, correct? Yes. So why would we be doing something like that? Why do, would we know that what we're doing basically is hindering ourselves? We're almost like shooting ourselves in the foot by printing more and more money because the value of the dollar goes down and then how do we gonna, you know, how do we get over that? It's by inflation. That's what causes the inflation, correct? That's, that's right. Um, you are making an assumption that I don't think you have a right to make. You're assuming that everyone is looking out for the best interests of this country. The progressive left is not interested in the best interests of the country. On the contrary, they are interested in creating crises because crisis is the catalyst of change. And, like the, the, catalyst, and the catalyst to print more money. Well, like with COVID-19. So that, that crisis comes. And then what do we need to do? We have to print more money so then we can have a stimulus package to bring out to everyone else. Absolutely. So it looks like now that crisis, let's just say that crisis was created purposefully, right? Now they come in and they're the saviors is what you're saying, right? Because they're going to come in and help everyone out. Yeah. Uh, or um, just allow open borders, let Hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, of Mexicans, Colombians, Ecuadorians uh, come into the country. Give them welfare. They need welfare. They need to be taken care of. They need baby formula. Um, that is an excuse for the government to spend more more trillions of dollars, and in time get the votes of all of these south of, south of the border illegal immigrants get their votes because they're giving them baby formula but why giving would, them but why would why would democrats let's just okay call it what it is why would they want to do something like that because when those immigrants come in the illegal immigrants come in they're going to have to work as well right and they're going to get these jobs that are not on the books so they're getting these low-wage jobs that these corporations will then use them for because they don't have to pay middle-class Americans. But that's taking away middle-class American jobs. Why would the federal government, why would the United States want to do that? Why would they want to take away the middle class like that? The Democrats want to do that because they're not interested in these immigrants working. They're interested in giving these Demo these illegal immigrants welfare payments, affordable housing, free education, free medical care, free food and everything because it makes for more dependent Americans. And the next push that we're going to see any time now is that there's no reason that a person who is here illegally should have any f fewer rights than Amer an American citizen. So there's going to be a push from the Democratic Party now. It's already started. It's going to get much more vociferous uh, to allow illegal immigrants to vote. Yes, they you see that in New York. Franchise. You're seeing that yes. also right yes. here in New York now. Excellent. You point. saw that with the driver's license. Yep. Right? Illegal yep. immigrants. Yep. Give them a driver's license. And Let they can vote in local New York elections. Yeah, which is the most ridiculous thing that I've seen. And what makes it ridiculous and what makes it dangerous 
is the fact that all these people who are going to be able to vote have no clue about what American culture is, about what the founding generation created, what says what the Constitution says, what the Declaration of Independence says. They have no interest, they have no knowledge, and it doesn't matter. As long as the Democrats can turn them into more dependents, they, they will it's, serve it's, the purpose. It's actually something similar to what they did to black Americans, the Democrats, in the 60s, in the early, you know, right after the World War II, and, you know, have them dependent on social welfare, put them on the welfare programs, WIC, whatever it may be, Section 8 housing, and then and say to them, hey, listen, you're at this poverty level. If you, re- if you go past this poverty level, then you're not going to get any of these benefits. But if you stay there, it's almost an incentive to not do well. Right. Because Perfect. if I if I start doing well, I'm going to I'm not going to get the government check. If I start making too much money, I'm not going to get all of this welfare that I'm entitled to. So I stay where I'm at. I'm always going to be at this poverty level. And then but I'm also going to vote Democrat because, because they're the ones who's giving the me the check. That, yeah. Uh, people um, working is hard. Working means uh, going to a commute twice a day, sitting in traffic or taking a crowded train or everything. Who wants to work? It means working for a boss who doesn't appreciate you, for co-workers who are backstabbers. Much better to sit home and watch TV um, and do everything. I described in my book, I described welfare uh, as um, uh, an effort-free wonderland of stigmatized indigents. No one ever got rich on welfare, except the welfare administrators who do very well by welfare and walk away with the money. Why? Why do you think that the United States as a whole? Because I, you know, in, you know, I have a limited knowledge of certain things. I'm, I'm sure you, you know, you have much more of an expertise in this matter. You wrote, obviously, you wrote a book. But why would they want? You know, you have a country that's thriving and it's based on the middle class. I feel like the middle class is what's the glue between the elite and poverty, right? They're the people that stick everything together, make it keep going copacetic wise. Why would you want to take away that middle class, which is the foundation to make this country such a powerful nation? Why would you want to do that and just then have elites? And then people that are in poverty. How does how how can this country continue its dominance in that fashion? It can't continue its dominance. Nor do the progressives care for America to be be dominant. Um, the progressives are stuck in a post-Marxian um, uh, analysis of capitalism. Capitalism sucks. It's a horrible, horrible system. This is what progressives believe axiomatically, that um, it's filled with inequality. Some have, so, uh, the few have so much, while the masses have so little. The exploitation thesis, the oppression thesis, this is what they see. When a progressive looks out at America, he sees worker oppression. That's why the Biden administration is working its tail off to create unions all over the country. It's not working. The workers don't want to be in unions, but they are almost forcing unions on. Why would, even, why would, why would workers not want to unionize? Because they wind up paying enormous 
dues to the unions who waste it, who are corrupt, and who don't do anything for the workers. And this is the history of so many workers. But then why would say so so why would say the Amazon workers, right? And especially here in New York, that they're trying to unionize, why would they want to do that, the workers? Why would the workers be in favor of that? How do they all of a sudden have this belief that if we join a union and we unionize, that it's going to protect us. Why wouldn't somebody say to them, hey, listen, exactly what you said, it's actually the opposite. Um, I once spoke to a woman who was a line worker for Amazon, and she described in 2021, a year ago I spoke to her, she described a 10-hour day which was maddening the number of packages she has to process over the course of every hour she works, every two hours she works, the difficulty of of getting a break, even to go to the bathroom, because you're stopping the whole process. So I can understand that just like uh, auto workers or, or just like machine shop workers, who worked in the heyday of the Industrial Revolution, 12-hour days, nonstop, a half hour to eat their lunch at their work table, and then back to work. You know, it's it, was, really- it was difficult. But um, the latest Amazon workers declined the union. They didn't want it, and the union is appealing the first vote. They had a very powerful voice who convinced the workers to join a union in one vote, but that vote is being appealed, and I don't know if it's going to stick. All over the South, it's right-to-work states. There's no mandatory unionization, uh, and they don't want unions. Even the foreign car companies that are making cars in Alabama and Mississippi, um, the the unions are very happy. Uh, it's good business to keep a good worker good and satisfied. I also wrote that in my book. Um, and th- there's no war between an employer and an employee. It's not a war. They're in it together. Everyone profits when the company does well. Bosses learn that lesson by now, and workers appreciate their bosses who give them time off and give them lockers and give them gyms to work out in. I I want to talk a little bit about now unemployment because I think this is a perfect uh, opportunity to learn a little bit about the history of what's going on here economically for the middle class in America. I want to ask you about China going into the World Trade Organization and what that did you know, at the time, maybe I think it was um, Harry Kissinger, Henry Kissinger always thought that they should be open market and, and allow them in. And it was President Clinton who then subsequently actually ha- let it happen, correct? Yeah. So what did that do, allowing China into the World Trade Organization, what did that do to the middle class here in America? The belief was that if China adopts capitalism, that communism would have be overthrown, just like it was in Russia, with Glasnost and Perestroika. Um, That didn't happen. The communist elite kept their power, kept their people oppressed and exploited, uh, and took advantage of America by robbing our technology and everything else. So uh, just like the League of Nations, just like the UN, some knuckle-headed American um, government officials 
believe, let's bring China in, let's show them the benefits and the glories of capitalism without realizing that, realizing that communist is an expansive ideology. It wants to take over the world. It keeps its own people in poverty. Um, but wouldn't you also think, wouldn't you also say this though, that the United States wanted China to be another partner in buying the debt of the United States in a way, right? Yeah. Open up that. They will then have to, you know, we will get money from them. And, but what happened in, in my opinion, and this is why I wanted to, you know, see what your opinion is, is it actually had a, like you said, they didn't change over to capitalism. And it actually had a negative effect because opening up that market, we then had an incentive to these American companies to leave America, the factories, let's just say Apple or Nike or whoever, or Boeing, yeah, yeah. and then start creating factories over there because they knew that the wages were going to be so low so they could, it would affect their profit margins. Well, not only that, that's another factor. We pushed American corporations to go overseas by high taxes, by regulatory policies, the costs of complying with regulations, contradictory regulations from two different agencies, three different agencies. That's why when Donald Trump lowered taxes from 35% down to 21%, so many co companies came back to America. But why would we do that? Why would, okay, I, I mean, unless you're telling me at the time they thought it was a good idea and they didn't have the, uh, the ability to foresee what it was going to create, meaning that it was going to wipe out the middle class here because no one is making anything. Like for an example, I read an article, what was this, maybe two weeks ago, that Raytheon can't make, because of the supply chain issues, can't make those Stinger missiles and they're having difficulty doing that. And then it made me think to myself, well, if we're having supply chain issues making wartime weapons, and that means we're relying on other countries for that, what would happen if we were in a war, we don't have the capacity to make it our own? Why wouldn't we foresee that as a country? That if we start, you know, shipping out these factories to other countries, that something like this could take place. Why would we do that? Why didn't we have the foresight to understand that these companies are going to go there? You're saying because they tax them so much. They're going to go over there and then those jobs are going to be taken away here. And then the unemployment here is going to skyrocket. And that's exactly what it did. That's right. Uh, I would say the cause of it is on the one hand cockeyed optimism uh, that let's all get together. We're in this together. Um, it's also... The government could spend so much money, can go into debt to such a degree. One, because I think China now has $2 trillion in treasury certificates. They're buying our debt. And two, the prices for everything were as low as can be. You go into Walmart, you can't find anything that wasn't made in China. But because they work with coolie wages in China, all the products are so much cheaper. Uh, uh, Texas Industries made a ceiling fan that cost about $129. You could buy it at Walmart for $29 because it's made in China. So the purchasing power of Americans, uh, the disposable income of Americans, 
exploded, even though taxes were so high, businesses were leaving, workers were uh, losing their jobs. But so what? You give the workers unemployment. Very generous and unemployment. And now they're on unemployment, and the fan that was $120 is $20, but they're not making as much as they were being independent. Now they are succumbed to being dependent on the government, and they'll get the $20. As a token, that's right. But what's the what's that's the right. advantage? Yeah, it's crazy that that you that you just pointed that out. What is it? Can you just explain what's the incentive of China buying debt, the United States debt? How does that work, and what what is that whole formality? Uh, I don't know what the Chinese are thinking, other than that they get the interest payments on the debt. We're spending $300 billion a year servicing the national debt. Just the I annual interest charges are $300 billion. So they buy our debt, and then they get the interest off the debt. Yeah. Um, and they're making nice to the United States. They're supporting our suicide basically because we're going into debt hey the Chinese are gonna buy our debt everything's fine uh, until it isn't and then also it is making their country their economy prosper by having all those jobs over there and having all these companies flee from the United States and then enter That's into right. the market in China but the, the Chinese people don't benefit. They are getting nothing. That's why China's entire economy is based on their exports, especially their exports to America. The Chinese people, they're just starting to make enough money to buy sneakers and everything like that. The American companies, corrupt American companies, are itching to sell their goods to China. Here is a new market that is universal it's almost you know how you're, you're you're saying it is there was almost a period of time it seems like there was a divorce from these big corporations in the middle class right there was some type of separation when they left and said we don't need you anymore to the middle class and really it started the destruction in my opinion of the united states economy and the united states in general right because once those corporations said, we're not going to, why pay you at the time, say, $10 an hour or whatever it was, $5 yeah, yeah. an hour, we could pay 45 people the exact same amount that we're paying one person here in America. But again, I just don't understand why the government here, the country, would allow such practice to happen when they knew at the end that the American worker is the one who's going to suffer. Uh, yeah, they might be able to buy something cheap, a fan, at Walmart, but they don't have any more independence. They're dependent on that that government check instead of saying, hey, I could be maybe be an entrepreneur. I can make my own money. I could ask for a raise. You can't ask for a raise, Arm, when you're on government assistance. You're just getting whatever you're getting. The Democratic left has absolutely no interest in a strong, prosperous America. They want to create as many dependents on government as they possibly can because that assures their electoral victories year after year. Um, you have to rid yourself, Joe, of the idea that 
the progressive left and the Democratic Party has the best interests of this nation. Oh, I, I, I am way old past that. I know that for a fact. But what, so, but basically, what you're saying, from what I'm hearing, is, and this is my belief as well, is the real enemy really isn't China. China's just doing what we allowed them to do, right? They didn't force themselves upon the United States. Whatever they have is what we gave them for whatever stupid reason it may be. The real enemy here is the Democratic Party because it seems from what you're saying, if you just fast forward this exact policy that we're doing right now, 20 years from now, it would be with the influx of the border, with the destruction of the middle class, it would be a one-party rule system meaning the Republicans would never be able to win an election, so it would just be a constant Democratic leadership. That's exactly what the goal is. That's exactly uh, why the policies are what they are. It's not going to work. Um, the saving grace for America is that less than 40% of the Americans went to college. That is our saving grace. You go to college today, you lose your common sense. You get embroiled in all kind of ideology, uh, all kinds of theories that don't work, that have never worked. But the people who are controlling the universities today are the radical anti-war generation of the 60s. They went into college administration, college jobs, hating this country for the Vietnam War, for slavery, for post-slavery. For the Civil Rights Act, whatever yeah, it may yeah. be. Um, and now they are in charge of the universities. The thing is, the universities teach the next generation of grade school, middle school, high school teachers, of judges, of journalists, of poets, of playwrights, um, of screenwriters. And so the entire culture is going to the left because of what happens in the Ivy League universities and the people who are in the Ivy League universities were the radicals of the 60s and early 70s. Uh, that is the demise of America. But, as I say, only 40%, less than 40% of Americans have been to college. Most Americans have not lost their common sense. Most Americans feel the pain, finally, of all the policies that this country has been pursuing for the last 30 or 40 years. So now is the time to reach the American people. Have you had enough? Asking them, uh, can you feel the pain? Do you want to do something about it? And so everyone is surmising that the Republican victory in uh, no, next November is going to be overwhelming. It's going to kick the Democrats the hell out of power, except for Joe Biden. Um, and it looks like that's going to happen because with crime, with critical race theory, with the Green New Deal, with unlimited immigration, the All of Democrats the things that you're saying is everything that leads to the dependence of big government. Yes, but Americans don't want to be independent. Americans want to be independent. The average man on the street, woman on the street, they love their lives. They love their liberties. They love this country. I know, they love but America. I, 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 I got to say, Doc, though, I have a, you know, unfortunately, you know, and I thought I would see it already. And maybe you, maybe you have a difference of opinion and you think that maybe that it's coming. But there's got to be some type of uprising. And I'm not saying that there has to be bloodshed in a way. But I feel like the Republican Party 
There's a bunch of rhinos that are in there, like Mitch McConnell. Um, a whole bunch all of them. them. All, all of them. them. All of them. You know, and Except I also Jim Jordan. Yeah, he's he's great. And Jim Lily Gomer maybe. Yeah. But I feel as if that also the American people, the Republican people, the what Democrats would call the MAGA people. I still feel as if though that they are still too silent and allowing things to happen because, hey, it's not affecting me so much and I want to have my own independence like you say and I want to move on with my life and I don't want to be too much attached to that because it's not in my nature to go and burn down a precinct. It's not in my nature to go and rob and loot and, and burn down buildings because I love America so much. So when is it what do you think is going to be the point or the precipice of when the tipping point, when the temperature actually goes from, say, freezing to, boil, you know, like, you know, it changes. Something's what happens. I've been saying literally since 1980 is that things will have to get considerably, considerably worse in this country before they can get considerably better. They are in Things are in the process of getting considerably worse. What I've also also always said is that Americans are apathetic. They are complacent. And they have a right to be because politics is so damn corrupt and the people know it. So the people's attitude all these years has been, why the hell get involved? The politician is going to lie to me. He's going to tell me what uh, he thinks I want to hear. And then he's going to do whatever he wants. And he's going to kowtow to the lobbyists and the organized special interests anyway. So in other words, cynicism is in good part what kept Americans out of the political process. Also, skepticism. I watch a TV show every once in a while, and the Democrat and the Republican, the conservative and the liberal, they all sound so good. I listen to the conservative and believe everything he says. Then the liberal answers, and he sounds just as persuasive as the conservative sound. How am I supposed to know what we should do? That was the American electorate for all of these years they were concerned with what they should be concerned with the things that are closest to their lives their family their faith their their, their jobs advancing their lives raising their children that's as it should be that's our strength they only they made the mistake because they didn't realize that we elect the men who write the laws that create the conditions in which we all prosper or perish now the American people are learning the lesson. They can no longer afford to remain silent. Do you and they are learning that. Do you think that's why the uprising of Donald Trump is what happened? Because he started to, you had this, you know, you had this elites, so to speak, that were, like you said, it was happening for years and years and years and then all of a sudden you had this one individual who came and basically pulled back the curtain and said, look what's really going on here. You have the FBI, the CIA, they're all in on it. Military. You have the military, you have the media, which all of a sudden, you know, which to me was really something, you know, there was a transition and I, and I don't know if I really could grasp exactly when that transition was, but you used to have a media that was totally objective, right? You had ABC News, CBS, and you would get the facts and, and, and whatnot. 
But then what happened is, and in my opinion, you had these big corporations that came, Disney buying, say, ABC, right? You had um, Ted Warner. You had all of these companies. Then all of a sudden what happened is, is these journalists became, went from being regular journalists to all of a sudden being infamous celebrities. So instead of now trying to attack the what's going on on the inside, they were actually people on the inside. They were making all this money. Yeah, but they were all in college. They were studying from the radical professors who were telling them how unfair capitalism is, telling them all these years that uh, uh, America is filled with racism, sexism, uh, transphobia, every evil hate, conservative hate speech, uh, Republican voter suppression, rampant police brutality, toxic masculinity. They were learning these lessons from the professors. They were turned off to America by the professors in their classrooms. It didn't it wasn't necessary for the corporations to take over, although they were definitely part of it. I absolutely agree with you. But the main thing was the education, the educational system was corrupted and spit out people. So, so let me ask you this, though. So you have the people that are there now in these institutions, the professors, the adjunct, whatever it may be. The presidents, the, 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 the donors, whatever it is that are there now teaching these children offices teaching equity inclusion and diversity where did did it start though so these professors actually also went to school were they taught that same ideology that same type of propaganda that's happening to these students now so then where did it start from was it marxism yes it's marxism marxism begins and ends with the idea that capitalism has to go that capitalism is nothing but exploitation or oppression by the workers by the owning classes um and and that um people cannot live under a system with such great inequality these are the, this is the essence of but it's Marxism. not inequality though it's equality that anyone can do anything whatever they want if they want to achieve greatness they got to put in the work that's not what marxists see when they look at america they see that so few have so much and so many have so little that's all they can see they don't see anything past it they don't but it's because of their ideologies that that's happening even more that's because capitalism is really about what the middle class Right, an opportunity, an opportunity that that middle class person who's maybe say working at the Amazon job nine to five starts saving some money, and then all of a sudden has an idea and says, "I'm going to start my own corporation, and then I could be into that elite class." But if I want to do it, if I have the ideas, if I save the money, I have the opportunity to be able to do that. So it really is something that is is such a you know a mind. Uh, mind control but that's it you have to you have to understand that it's an axiom it's an axiom of nature it's irrepressible why do they don't know that why are they they're actually it's like they're these marxists are shooting themselves in their foot in the foot because they're saying you know there's inequality but really what they're doing is they're making it the elite be even more elite and the people that are in poverty, even more, pro- the separation, the gap is even greater. And the elites love it 
the elites are part of the Marxist power structure. Because they don't want to give it up. Yeah, that's right. And because it rewards them. So like a Nancy Pelosi, who is making millions of dollars from whatever the insider trading, she should be making, what, $220,000 a year on her government yeah. salary, yeah. is now a wealthy millionaire. Who knows how much money she has. She sits there and says, from what I'm hearing from you, is this not going to affect me or my family, but how I can keep this wealth is by changing America and making more, you know, we stay here and we take the middle class and keep them even further down. That's right, and the elites, um, uh, the tech companies and, and, and everyone, um, they know they will benefit. It's, it's pure corruption, but they know they will benefit and that's all they care about. Notice that every single congressman or senator leaves after 20 years of public service, being a civil servant, being elected representative, and they leave with $30 million in their bank account. They leave with $20 million, $10 million in their bank account. They never worked a day in the private sector. But they know how to manipulate the system. They know how what companies to invest in. In other words, they know that there's a law that's that was just passed by the House of Representatives. It's going to the Senate. It will also be passed. And this law will allow them to invest in the companies that are getting the benefits of that law. Like electric they're, cars. They're Exactly. Or even the charging stations. Yes. A whole nation of charging stations. These are companies that will be getting government contracts, government subsidies. Their stock has to go up. They're not taking any risks. It's They're a guaranteed safe, money. sure thing. It's a guaranteed money. And, That's guaranteed customer. And the congressmen and congresswomen and senators understand that these companies are going to be the next big thing in America. Um... And so they invest in their but, stock. And it's and basically what you're saying is it's insider trading, but legal. <laughs> That's exactly right. But then what do we do about and corrupt. that? Then how do we get around that? How, what has to happen? What is Donald what? Trump has to primary out as many rhinos as he can, put in good men who served in, and women who served in the military. And there are many, many such individuals running for Congress in November and running for the Senate in November. People who love this country, who serve their country in uniform, who know that the country is going down the drain. Uh, Donald Trump is running around from rally to rally to rally, giving name recognition to these individuals who in November or in June and May and June will primary out the rhinos so that finally we will have a Congress that can do what Donald Trump wanted to do from the beginning, drain the swamp. So, you know, I agree with you, what you're saying, but then you see like a move with, say, Dr. Oz and him campaigning for him and him trying to promote his politics but then you hear things that dr oz didn't really is not in favor of the first the second amendment he's not really in favor he's not a pro-life type individual so why would donald trump then want somebody like that to come in because that seems like the prototypical rhino so that donald trump can get free medical advice from the premier thoracic heart surgeon in america it's a joke you could be right, though. <laughs> I could be right. You could be right, though. No. Sounded pretty good at first. I said, oh, good. I didn't think about this one. Um, I would say that 
Dr. As, Dr. Oz had a deathbed conversion, even though he never met his deathbed yet. Oh, I know uh, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah um, and that Donald Trump is confident that Dr. Oz sees the light now and will not go back to his uh, pro-choice position, his anti-gun position that he had several years ago. It's almost ago. as if saying, kiss the ring and I will, you know, and, and you consent yeah. to the our way of thinking and the conservative way of thinking and I will then yeah, back Also, you. Dr. Oz is a rock star. Uh, I personally DJed the parties uh, for his department, the thoracic surgery department uh, at, oh, I forgot the name of the hospital uh, that he was in. Uh, he's a great guy. I spoke with him. He dances good too. Um, and um, I played uh, many, many uh, parties for his department. Um, he's a good guy. He's charismatic. Um, if his positions are right, and if he's going to stick to his positions, I don't blame Trump for uh, backing him, even though David McCormick was also uh, a MAGA guy. For You know, something else I want to ask you is in regards to black Americans. Why is it, and I, and I, I kind of, it's almost like a rhetorical question, I feel like, in, in a way, but why is it that black Americans don't see up to this point now in 2022 that they, the Democratic Party is basically using them and keeping them at a level that are now not allowing them to prosper. And why aren't black Americans then converting into being a Republican, a conservative? Because I feel like black Americans are conservative by nature. Yeah, um, you're right. And they are. There is a tremendous conversion now of middle class black Americans turning to the Republicans of Hispanics in outrageous numbers turning to the Republicans for salvation. Uh, and the worse the Democrats are at governing, the more crisis they're creating, the more middle-class, rational black Americans and Hispanic Americans are becoming Republican. Um, and the Democrats are scared as heck as that happened. The only thing they have uh, the underclass, the underclass of Hispanics on welfare, of, of blacks on welfare, and traditionally, they don't vote. They're the least likely to pull the lever for a uh, Democrat or Republican. So the Democrats have to scare their welfare populations to death, and that's what they're doing right now. You vote for a Republican, he's going to take away your Social Security. He's going to take away your welfare. They're coming after you next. You wrote a book called Case Against the Welfare, right? Mm -hmm. Again, so The title of the book was Everything You Have, which I borrowed from Gerald Ford, who in 1976 said, a government that is big enough to give you anything you want is big enough to take everything you have. It's a great that, line. Yeah, it, 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 the premier line, in my opinion. Um, when he said that in 1976... I was half asleep and I perked up and I wrote it down uh, yeah. verbatim. It's a great, it's a and, great line. And so that's why the book is everything you have: the case against welfare, because it's not only our prosperity we will forfeit in the scramble for public assistance, but our liberties as well. Well, how do you do that? How do you change the current system that we have now, when you have all of these people? that are on welfare now, right? How do you all of a sudden just say one day, we're gonna take that away? How do we eventually get from a welfare state to a state that real capitalism is actually the engine that's that's 
making this system go. The welfare population is still a minority population in this country. The Democrats are working overtime to create more and more and more and more dependency. But there are still middle class Americans who are picking up the bill for welfare and who resent it. There are more and more black Americans who are entering the middle class, who are raising their children with values, who are going to church every Sunday. Uh, and those children are having children a couple generations now, and they are the salvation of the country. And we have so many African-American congressmen and senators. I love this guy, Byron Donalds in Florida, who was great. Herschel Walker may well win his election. Um, the guy in North Carolina, I can't he's in the house. I forgot his name. Great guy. Um, they're all over. They're articulate. They are speaking to black communities. They are speaking to black church groups. Donald Trump is addressing black church groups. Donald Trump had pastors and ministers at the White House when he was president who were listening to his talk and believing it. The platinum plan that he had that was also there that helped black communities. Yeah, and, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so, so in, in other words, the battle hasn't been lost. It certainly hasn't been won, but my basic theory is that the more Americans come to feel the pain, the more they will get involved. The thing is, get involved how? What are we going to do to extricate from this situation that we're in, from a $30 trillion debt, from all the taxes, from all the regulations? What is the solution? And what is old is new again. You have Newt Gingrich making the rounds of all the talk show hosts talking about the balanced budget amendment again. We talked about in 2014 with the rise of the Tea Party. You have uh, Steve Forbes talking about the flat tax uh, as the solution to the country's problem. And these men do not know the solution to the problem and the solutions that they pick will not work. It will take years to pass an amendment to the Constitution, a balanced budget amendment. And once it's passed, the country has to decide what programs we're going to cut in order to balance the budget. Eight years, ten years down the road, if the amendment passes, it has to pass two-thirds of both houses and three-quarters of the states. Is that possible? Are there progressive states that aren't going to go for it? Um, so that's not the solution, in my opinion. Neither is the flat tax. I wrote that um, uh, VAT or BAT, the value-added tax, the border adjustment tax, VAT or BAT, fair or flat, tax reform won't fix a thing. There is no safe way to pay for a runaway welfare state. So what, what will fix it? That's what I came here today from Brooklyn, New York to discuss. There is only one solution. It's a practical solution. It's a realistic solution. We, the people, have to engage in a massive letter-writing campaign to our congressmen and senators, especially those sitting on the Appropriations Committee. This might wait till next November, but it's good getting a head start on this idea. Demanding Congress defund big government. Defund big government. That means cutting specific programs, closing specific agencies and departments.
answering the questions. Give me a give me a couple of examples of what agencies or what programs need to be cut out. What would you if you were in charge of that? I would begin with the Department of Education. Seventy two billion dollars a year it spends. Countless numbers of bureaucrats are living high on the hog off of the salaries they get working for the Department of Education in promoting critical race theory, in promoting the Green New Deal, in promoting this transgender agenda, the Department of Education is not doing any school-age child any damn good. We don't need it. Are you saying that these things that are happening in the schools are creating crises so that they keep their jobs, basically? So they get more money? Because we got to teach now critical race theory, so we have to ask for more money to come in here and have us you know, fund that project. And it also makes the students ignorant. They're not learning reading, writing, arithmetic, critical thinking. They're learning indoctrination indoctrination of the progressive agenda that's what they're learning that's what they're going to grow up thinking um what are, what assist what programs do you think that should be cut out uh well I, I i think globally i think in terms of entire departments i want to get rid of the department of commerce the department of agriculture and the department of labor these are clientele agencies that exist not to regulate their clients, but to support and prop up their clients. Give me an example for the Department of Agriculture. What would be something that, you know, so you have the Department of Agriculture and you would think by just hearing that, that is something that would protect us, protect the environment, protect farmers, correct? It protects corporate farmers. It protects the large guys. It does nothing uh, for the family farmer. Uh, it just just gives subsidies to the corporate farmers and makes it more difficult for a family farmer to compete with the corporate farms. One, they are so big, they do have efficiency of scale, but they are being supported by all kinds of subsidies and privileges. Is that, that where get. the lobbying then takes place? Yes. Right yes. there, right? Yes. Because you have these these big farmers have these lobbyists that That's go right. into Washington DC and say we need you know get give us the money because if you give us the money we could then give it's like a quid pro yeah, quo type thing uh, totally is is that what's going on in Ukraine right now with the United States and us having to give so much money because I really don't feel like we really have such a a you know, a reasoning to be there because this is an embedded thing that's been happening for years, Russia and Ukraine. It's something that we can't even, you know, comprehend. I believe that um, it's the military industrial complex. It's the defense contractors that are sending their lobbies to Congress. That's what I mean. To, it's just more, more corruption. And I believe that since the Biden administration has no respect for the law and because it appropriates money Congress passed in order to accomplish one purpose and the Biden administration takes that money and does something entirely else with it. One example is uh, the money that Congress passed to deal with the pandemic. The Biden administration took that money and used it to fly illegal immigrants to Westchester Airport and to 
cities all around the country with the money Congress appropriated to combat the pandemic. I believe that's an impeachable defense uh, uh, offense. I believe it's high. Uh, it's a high crime and misdemeanor to uh, divert money Congress appropriated for a specific purpose and use it for any damn purpose. How about also just in general during a pandemic that we're actually bringing illegal immigrants, not testing them, and then during a pandemic putting them in different areas of the country so they could spread the the virus even more. That could be right there, something in that nature. But I want to just go back to, because I'm really interested, because this is the, the hot thing that's going on right now, and I feel like it's going to escalate even more because I feel like there's dollar signs that our government only sees and they don't see the, you know, the, 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 the end game. And what I mean is, you know, right now we're, we're going to now have new countries coming into NATO, right? Which is just going to piss off Russia even more. They're a sovereign nation. They're an old nation. They're the biggest country in, you know, talking about landmass. They have the most nuclear weapons. But yet... We're still giving, like, I think another $40 billion that's going to go over there. But where is that $40 billion actually going? It's going to what? Lockheed Martin, Grumman, Raytheon. General right? Dynamics. General yeah. Dynamics. It's going to all these lobbyists because it's their new, like, say, Iraq war. Yes, and these military corporations, these uh, defense contractors, they are going to pour money into the Democratic war chest for the upcoming elections because they're as dependent as government as any welfare family. So are you saying that, that so the money that they're going to give, say Raytheon, Raytheon will take some of that money and then insert it back into, say, the, yes. vote, the, the yeah. people that are going, to, the Democrats that are going to go and run in 2022, donate to their campaigns, donate to their, whatever it may be. Everybody wins but the taxpayer. Um, Is that what happens though? Because I, I didn't. Yes, even that's think about exactly it. what happens. You give the money to A. A takes the money. Then it's almost like a wash. It's almost like they're washing the money. That's why it's corrupt. That's why American politics is nothing but a tissue of corruption. It's every special interest group, the welfare entitlement groups that I call them counterfeit capitalists because they don't make money by taking regular market risks. They run to government for a safe bet or a sure thing, and they're willing. They have something to get from government. They have something to give to the politicians, and the politicians are happy to take their money. They need the money to for their reelection campaigns, or to climb the ladder of politics. Um, and that's the sum and substance of American politics. That's why Donald Trump, I think, is the only man in America who could save this country, uh, if it can be saved. Do you think he can? Yes. Do you think it will be? Do you think Donald Trump will get elected in 2024? Or do you think there's obstacles that are going to be manufactured, should I say, without yeah. really saying it? It will have to be manufactured because yes. there is nothing that stands in his way realistically. If you're looking at reality, uh, he should get reelected. The Democrats have screwed up so badly um and are creating so much suffering so many hardships so much pain in the electorate that the electorate can no longer avoid all it would take to save this country is a nationwide grassroots letter writing campaign to the politicians um 
tell, demanding that they begin cutting programs and closing agencies and departments. If they get enough letters from the American people, they will have no choice but to do it, and the whole conversation of the country can change, not what the progressives want talk talk about, how we can grow government, but how we can shrink government. And that is what we have to do if we're going to save the country. So you're in, in, in some in substance, your theory is how we got here is because we expanded government. Yes. And now government became such an animal in itself that it's taking over almost as almost like a virus. Uh, yeah. Spreading uh, like a virus and, and basically anything in its path, it's destroying. That being number one, the middle class. That's right. Uh, you said it perfectly. Um, but it's up to the people. We can take our government back. We can get rid of rhino Republicans and progressive Democrats. We can vote intelligently, get engaged, and get properly enraged over what is going on, learn a little bit about civics again, and the country will be saved. It will take a long time. And in the process, there could be a crisis, another bad, bad crash, and then everything's up for grabs. Then Americans may say, we need government. Government, do something. Do something. Save us. What can we do? That's basically what's happening now with the economy. Baby formula. Save us. Get us more formula. Do something for us. And then they'll come in from whatever way they do it and save. But the conservatives are spreading the message that the FDA created the baby formula crisis by, by shutting down Abbott, Abbott Industries. Yes, yes. exactly. Uh, and by having protective tariffs that prevent foreign countries from sending their baby formula to America. Uh, the supply, uh, supply chain problem. Uh, and that's being investigated now because the politicians are scared uh, yeah silly. i know but it's the investigating it's you know it's the criminal investigating the criminal really and that's how i feel right now because i let you know what you were talking about agencies like in my opinion the fbi the cia has to be completely wiped out and revamped my opinion those too. people that are there need to go and put new people in because these people are totally connected to the democratic party in my opinion, and they have that democratic belief with Without the Brennans and you know. Without a doubt. Yes. Before I let you go here, I have a couple of questions, just isolated questions I wanted to ask you just to get your opinion on. You want Donald Trump, you say that he needs to be there. Who do you think his vice president should be? Byron Donalds. Maybe Nikki Haley. Not sure about that. It doesn't really matter. It's what he will do as president. Um, Jim Jordan, I would love to see him as a vice president. You think Ted Cruz would may get it or Ron DeSantis? Or do you think Ron DeSantis will stay isolated and not be associated, say, with Trump? I think that's what Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis is biding his time. If Trump wins another four years, Ron DeSantis will jump into the race right after that. Ted Cruz, I don't know. Ted Cruz crossed Donald Trump by supporting David McCormick over uh, Mehmet Oz. Uh, I don't know how Donald Trump feels about that. Pompeo did too. And Pompeo did also, yes. yes. Um, Donald Trump, unfortunately, he was too trusting as president. 
he picked a whole bunch of people uh, to administer his administration who didn't deserve it, who would turn coats and would turn right away. If I all if I was the president of the United States and I said I'm going to make you Secretary of Defense, was it Mayorkas who's there right now? Not no. not Defense um, of uh, Homeland Security. And I said, let's let's take care of the border. Granholm, I think. Uh, I thought uh, it was Mayorkas. No, he's a. Um, Isn't he Department of Homeland Security? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If if I said to you, I said, Doc, I'm going to make you in charge. I'm getting Mayorkas out of there. What would you? What would we have to do to seal up this border? Well, how do we? How do we fix this problem here? Build the wall. That's it. Yeah. Donald Trump had the exact plan: stay in Mexico policy uh, until one's case comes up. Um, sanctuary um, uh, Donald Trump had the solution he stopped immigration and if the wall was complete with all of the accoutrements that he called for the problem would be solved do you think because of what is taking place with Russia and Ukraine do you think that China is biding their time and eventually will attack Taiwan and if they do what would be the United States response do you think we sh that that should take place the Biden administration would probably give military aid to China. I'm joking. Uh, I don't know, but I don't trust it to defend Taiwan. We should be giving m military equipment, missiles right now, especially anti-ship weapons, like Ukraine took out the premier ship uh, from, from Russia uh, because um, Taiwan is an island. And they have to be invaded by ship. If we, if Taiwan can seek sink enough Chinese ships, uh, and missiles can take one missile can take out a ship these days, uh, then Taiwan has a chance. And China um, might not invade once they know that uh, Taiwan has these missiles. Eric, can you pull up the uh, the website when you have a chance here? I want to f you know, give the opportunity now, these two books that you have here and also your website here, and it's uh, jeromeheiler.com, and that's spelled H-U-Y-L-E-R. Can you tell us a little bit about the website, your uh, blog? Uh, yes, um, I have essays on the website uh, that are all very interesting. Uh, some are involved, but they offer uh, an idea of what the founding principles were, how limited, limited government was meant to be originally, according to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um, so that's what a lot of the essays do. There's, uh, there are essays on why leaders lie um, and what it signifies that they do lie. I saw that you have on one of your forums that you do. You said you had over one point something million readers, right? No, no, not on not the on the website. Yeah, but Quora, Quora, Q U O R A dot com, Quora dot com. I have a million point three. Um, my posts have attracted a million point three viewers. That's great. Yeah, that's is. something else. And I have that's how you get the message across. That's right. That's how you do it right there. When you used to have that type of following of that, that gives you some type of power and basically it gives you some credibility because who's going to how you know, you get to mil over a million people reading your stuff. That means you're doing something right. Uh, I agree. It's very gratifying. And the comments and the endorsements I get every single day um, just gives me more and more incentive to continue. Um, 
Uh, so com is where you can find me. And it's a site where people ask questions. So I have the opportunity, just like you did, have the opportunity to give specific answers to specific questions. And some of the, many of the questions are excellent, as are my answers, I believe. Uh, do you know anything about Substack? Have yes, you heard about that? Yes, Because I feel I, like I'm that would be... Substack. Oh, you are. But, but uh, I'm a novice on Substack. I don't... I, I have posted some things, but I don't know how to build a following on uh, Substack. I think, I, I think you would... Th- that forum, that, that you know, um, avenue of reaching people, I think that is right up your alley. I think that you would do excellent on there because that is where you could actually write things yes. without the fear of being censored. And speaking of censored, you're off of Facebook. How'd yes. that happen? What happened? Uh, I did a post um, denouncing Antifa, and I made the mistake of posting it on a number of sites, and the next thing I know, I get a message from Facebook that my account has been permanently canceled, and this decision cannot be reversed. Cannot be appealed. Cannot be What appealed. is that all about? I know, right? It's so cool. I never heard of that. I you, never heard of that either. You go to Facebook jail for three weeks or you something. You come out, you go on a little bit of probation. Yeah. No, they said, right away, they said, uh, your account has been canceled. This decision cannot be reversed. How can people follow you on social media? I know you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, H uh, U Y L E R J E at H U Y L E R J E. I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet as much as I used to. I still have four thousand followers or something. I had eight thousand followers. Um, I'm, I'm basically spending my time on Quora uh, because I'm very successful there. So I'm keeping that going and in messaging people back and forth before yeah. telling them about the website also and about my books. Yeah, so you have two books here. Let's just see both books and you just put them up. So that one here, let me see. This one, Everything You Have, The Case Against Welfare, right here. And then what do you have the second one? Let me take a look this here. Is, Lock in America, and you're obviously speaking of the infamous Locke from Great Britain, correct? Yes, yes. John Locke. John Locke. From and England. F- from it wasn't Great Britain yet, right yet. So okay. a few years after his death. Um, and that is the founding philosophy of America. Uh, and it was my doctoral dissertation, so that is a very serious book, Locke in America. But it describes Locke's philosophy, which I studied for years, in a way that no one else is describing his philosophy, uh, and how his philosophy got to influence the American colonists leading up to the American Revolution. That's an interesting process on its own. One last question for you. One la- I got two questions. Two, que- two last questions for you have nothing to do with anything that we've talked about here. Se- second to last question is, because you know this whole DJ thing threw me for a loop, so now I think totally different of you. I love it, by the way. I totally love it. Cereal. What's your favorite cereal of all time? Sugar cereal. Rice Krispies. Rice Krispies? Yeah. Uh, my tastes are in food are entirely pedestrian. I can tell. That's as vanilla as it gets is Rice Krispies. But, I mean, I'm a Rice Krispie guy. If you got Rice Krispies... I'm going to defend Rice Krispies. Over <laughs> You're going to. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh. Every other day with a little sugar and milk 
That's my breakfast. That's your thing. Are you a whole milk, 2%, 1% skim? Whole milk. Whole milk. And so if you see, if you're at a party and you see Rice Krispie treats, you're all over them, obviously, right? Yeah, but Cheerios are good. Special K is good. Product 19 is good. Okay. Frosted Flakes are good. All right. So I'm a cereal uh, guy. Last question, right? You're on your way out of this so-called thing, beautiful life, right? You're on your, your bed. And they're going to play one more song for you that you'll be able to listen to and enjoy one more time. What song is that? Someone is Standing Out There by Bill Medley. Someone is standing out there, outside. Someone is standing outside. It was on his first solo album after the Righteous Brothers broke up. He did a solo album and he did two songs on that album, Winter Will Come This Year and Someone is Standing Outside. And someone is standing outside uh, is what I can think of now, my answer. I love it. I yeah. love it. Well, listen, I want to say thank you so much for coming here. Thank you for inviting me. I had a, a fabulous time getting to know you. I, I love that. I hope that you feel, I hope the feelings are mutual. Yes. And again, it's Dr. Jerome Heiler. Get his two books. Can you get these books on Amazon? How do yes, you get these books? they're both available on both Amazon. Both available on Amazon. Everything you have, The Case Against Welfare by Jerome Heiler, Dr. Jerome Heiler, and also Lock in America again both on Amazon you can follow him on Twitter his website is Heiler, Jerome Heiler H-U-Y-L-E-R dot com Doc thank you thank you Joe I really appreciate it and you could uh, this show make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as Rumble the show will be streaming there and all the audio it's audio um, Apple Podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, you name it, where it's available. And again, Doc, you were great. I would love to have you back anytime. And with that being said, we're out. Peace. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. But that wraps it up for another edition of the Joe Cozo Show. <laughs>